0: Hello and welcome to this Hub Fireside Chat, coming to you live from Birmingham. It could have been worse. We could have been in Coventry. <laughs> I don't have my trusty uh, sidekick slash uh, dancing monkey Pete Bates here. I feel slightly naked. But even better than that, I've got two of the biggest names in the world of knee surgery here. And I'm really hoping that some of their knowledge, skill, talent and money will rub off on me. <laughs> but I'm really feeling smarter just sitting here, just bathing in their auras. So normally, when we record these in the studio, we have a clacker that goes to let us know it started. So would you mind just smacking your hands together just once, then we can start. Thank you. That's all the applause you're going to get. And we're off. So listen, I've been given total carte blanche by CommEd to talk about anything that we like. We've not been asked to discuss any implants, anything from CommEd. There's no sales there. It's slightly unusual. Um, I was like, are you sure? I mean, you're sponsoring this session. They said no. So they've got to stand here. It's up to you if you want to go and visit them. They're clearly not bothered. Uh, <laughs> I'm joking, but it does mean we can talk openly, and I'm grateful to them for that. So the title of this fireside chat is What the Experts Really Do, Proven Tactics for a Smooth Practice and Avoiding Pitfalls. So the key focus here is none of this on-the-podium bollocks. Real questions, honest answers for everyday practices. So we're joined by two esteemed guests here. of Peter Vedonk an orthopaedic surgeon at the Antwerp Orthopaedic Centre, and professor at the University of Antwerp, or Antwerpen as we uh, linguists like to say. And he's also a visiting surgeon at Aspita in, in Qatar. And we have Al Getgood, an orthopaedic surgeon at the fowler Kennedy Sport Medicine Centre, assistant professor at the University of Western Ontario, also a visiting surgeon in Abu Dhabi and Aspita in Qatar. I've just realised I'm the only one here who's not working in the Middle East. <laughs> <laughs> i'm really missing a trick here aren't i i need to get over to saudi asap uh these chaps got suitcases full of rolexes uh just go down to the cloakroom you're the one you can't lift so listen it's a huge shame that tim can't be here he deserves all the congratulations this is his meeting it's uh, in its 20th year and he's been such a driving force he was supposed to be here with us right now as you can see so if you could just have a, a round of applause and thanks for timothy john wallace Spalding. And we'll pour out some liquor. But you know, the main reason that I actually wanted to speak to Tim was I wanted to clear up one thing. And I'm really glad he's not here because I really wanted to know why I wasn't shortlisted for his fellowship in 2013. I mean, I didn't even get an interview. It was like, it was cold. I mean, I'm kind of over it now.
1: (laughs) I barely think about
0: it. You know, the therapies really help.
1: I'm pretty sure the last time we spoke, Cash, actually, you mentioned this. I
0: (laughs) I did. Um, the, the irony is that Tim and I know we closely together at Cleveland Clate London, and I tell him re- regularly how he crushed my soul. Al, how many talks have you given at this
1: meeting? Six, I believe.
0: Six. They They've really made you sing for your supper.
1: Well, yeah, it's an expensive flight, so I guess you, best, you know you got to get your money's worth, right?
0: That they have. Listen, you've um, shown some amazing cases. You've, you are speaking at every single meeting I've ever been to, and the ones I don't go to, you're still there on the faculty, You work in Canada, Abu Dhabi, and Qatar. So the number one question that everyone wants to know here is when do you actually do any bloody work to collect these cases? Yeah, tell us. Yeah, someone
1: else else does all the work and I, I just do all the travel. No, I mean, I'm busy when I'm home. And, um, you know, we have an interesting sort of setup in Canada whereby I have a certain amount of OR time over the course of a year. Yeah. And so when I go away, um, I swap my OR time with one of my partners. So then when I'm home, then I'm, you know, I'm working much harder when I'm there. And over the course of that year, I'll still do the same number of operations. But if I didn't travel, I'd be actually probably be quite a quiet practice. And I don't want to do that in my mid so you could have... 40s. So
0: concertine is your practice. Yeah, yeah. Cool. And just out of interest, there wasn't, I actually wasn't going to ask this, but I'm curious. What's it like operating in the Middle East, working there? Peter, how do you find it?
2: I think for me, it's, uh, it's always foots on the ground. I mean, getting back to the, the reality of treating patients. Yeah. I mean, they're the same patients with the same issues. Same pathologies? They have different morphologies, different laxities. And they, I mean, you, you find out stuff, yep. things you never considered before. You suddenly discover like, okay... And one of the things that I learned in all humbleness was not to do Western medicine for Middle East patients. I mean, there's, there's different things out there, and most likely, or maybe, they need a different treatment. What, what do you mean by that exactly? I'm, I'm intrigued. Um, for example, my former boss, Professor Martins, was in the Middle East way before everybody else. Mm. And he was routinely doing LET on his patients. Right. Um, and we were, back then, we were thinking that LET might be overdoing it. I'm talking 80s, 90s. Yeah. And so he was successful because he was routinely doing this on these patients because they really needed
0: it. Right. So that's interesting. So is that where you got the idea, Al?
1: Uh, from the Middle East? No, I mean I wasn't. I obviously wasn't in the Middle East at the time when I started instability. Yeah. But um, I totally agree with Pete. You know, it's uh, it's made, for me. I feel it's maybe a better doctor, a better surgeon. You know, you're, you're given challenges that you wouldn't ordinarily come across in your normal practice. Mm. And so I think by being out there, it's, it's it's helped my patients when I then go back home to Ontario. So yeah. it's been it's been a phenomenal experience. And we have you know we do the we call the Abu Dhabi special, which is a combined anterior closing wedge osteotomy, BTB-ACL revision with an LET. And that's pretty much all I do when I go out there. And a Rolex. And a Rolex, yeah. <laughs> two, two.
0: <laughs> one free charm. <laughs> no, that, that's impressive. And it's interesting you mentioned that because the fact is, so I do private practice here in London, and I would say that the private practice that I do has genuinely made the care I give my NHS patients better because you're seeing more patients, more morphologies, more testing types. And so it's very true, isn't it, that what you get in one place will benefit the other. You, you, Al, you talked yesterday about some pretty crazy cases—femoral and t- uh, tibial re- de- de- derotation osteotomies. You talked about LETs. You talked about these slope correcting osteotomies. Do you ever just do a, a simple meniscectomy?
1: <laughs> no, I, not allowed in Canada. <laughs> that doesn't happen. What you you resect meniscus guy? <laughs> No, nah, I mean, you know, at the end of the day, the reality is that a lot of, you know, Peter mentioned it on the podium as well today. You know, mm-hmm. the reality is that a lot of patients, you cannot, you know, I, I can't um, plan what my patient comes into the office with. And so if they have a meniscus tear that I can't repair, you've, you know, I do a resection. Yeah. And it's for me, it's just all about, you know, using some of his data that he's produced to be able to you know, counsel patients appropriately and preempt the issues that they may face later down the track. And uh, I think the worst thing, as I said say to my residents and fellows, would be, you know, don't, you know, don't take out a meniscus that is repairable. That's, yeah. you know, that's kind of criminal. But, um, you know, but if, you, if you have to resect a meniscus, you've got to do it. The thing that, that, that blew my mind, actually, I've always told
0: patients your risk of arthritis goes up like the minute you tear your meniscus and then when you've had a menisectomy. But Andy Metcalf's slide that said it's 40 times higher chance of knee replacement. I had no idea it was that high. Pete, what do you tell people?
2: Well, first of all, I think we, we need to stop blaming menisectomy as being the thing. it's It starts with the lesion. Yeah, And that's very important. I mean, we've been blaming the surgeon quite the last 10 years and you're the driver of the disease and you basically do stuff wrong. But it's it starts with the lesion. Yeah. And so from there, you have this cascade of of getting into the OA. And it can start really early. I mean, we see patients 25, 28 come in with degenerative medial meniscus. No, and the beauty of this meeting now is that not only
0: do I not blame the surgeon? I'm also going to blame the patient's bone size. So that, thank you for that.
2: Yeah, well, that's, it's, really, it's your parents' fault. Yeah.
0: It is your parents' fault, yeah. <laughs> in, in terms of meniscus repairs, so there's been a lot of quite high value, really quite earnest conversations. has been very useful. But for a lot of people, people, most people here will do the basics regularly. We'll see torn ACLs and torn menisci. What percentage are you doing all inside meniscus repairs versus inside out?
2: I think the all insides have dropped a little bit over the years, and yeah. the inside outs have gained. It's a little bit more complicated. You need people. We were discussing the setup of your clinic. Mm. I work in a public hospital, but it's run like a private hospital. So, and still, I have enough people around me that can help me. Yeah. I we were in two rooms all the time, two nurses all the time. They know what we do. We have fellows. Everybody's there, and we they know what I'm supposed to do. Yeah. Similar for you, Al? Yeah, I mean the vast majority are going to be
1: uh, all inside because the majority of meniscus tears that I repair are at the time of ACL reconstruction. They're usually small longitudinal tears, and you know the, the numbers of bucket handles that I'm seeing, I, you know, is, is a small proportion of the meniscus repairs that mm. I do. Um, but the ones that you know really need the repair, yeah, I'm doing a lot of inside outs, and you know, it's it's kind of funny. I did a meniscus transplant in in Abu Dhabi with uh, Charlie, and we have a we have a nurse there called Robert, Filipino nurse, fantastic. He's absolutely expert at catching needles. Tying the sutures as we go, and he's used to doing it, and so we have that routine. Robertson Holiday, one week, I'm doing a meniscus transplant, so I get Charlie to catch the needles. Yeah. Hated every minute of it. Right. Right. You know, and so, and the reality, you know, when you're not down there and you're underneath the knee trying to catch these needles, it's tough. So you need, you need expertise, you need people, and you, you know, you need a team to be able to do that in in an efficient manner. And the thing that's interesting
0: is, so I mentioned earlier, I'm now working with Tim Spalding after kind of eight years as a consultant, we we now do a combined operating list once a fortnight at Cleveland. And so ironically, I'm now doing a fellowship kind of eight years in. And so all the stuff that Kira was talking about was all familiar. And since we started doing meniscus transplants quite regularly, my number of inside-out repairs has gone up. And I just see a lot of meniscus tears, and I felt I was pretty competent repairing them all inside. But I would encourage everyone here to try the inside-out, particularly for some of the bucket handle tears It's very handy just to reduce it, isn't it? Hold it in place and then fix around. But it's one of those things, if you don't practice it or do it regularly enough, when you really need to do it, you can be caught with your pants down.
1: Just on on the note of the fellowship, Tim did say that you're an above-average fellow, so it's
0: okay. (laughs) As (laughs) long as he signs my forms, it'll be all right. Um, Do you guys, how are you enhancing your repairs biologically?
2: Um, Basically marrow venting. That's the thing I, I Microfracture do the notch. Microfracturing the notch. That's the only thing I do on a routine basis.
0: Yeah. And, and sorry, the technique for that, this might sound a bit simple, but are you, are you coming in front of the ACL? Are you crossing portals, coming in front of the PCL?
2: I come in front of the ACL. Okay. That's where I, on a big hammer and a couple of big holes. Fine. And you, Al? Same plus rasping. You gotta remember when we do
1: meniscus transplants, I put a dead bit of tissue into the knee and it never I very rarely see a meniscus transplant that has issues healing peripherally. They all heal. The problems I have with meniscus transplants are posterior posterior root. So, you know, I think the the, the vascularity is there to heal. It's really just the lesion that's the problem.
0: Fine. And what are your rehab protocols? Post meniscus repair? Let's just say it's posterior meniscus, you put in two all inside meniscus repairs. How are you rehabbing
2: them? uh if they're isolated they're gonna be three weeks on crutches and uh, six weeks not beyond 90 if they're in association with an acl Mm. i try to reduce complexity and i'll just let them go unless i believe my job was technically not perfect Mm. and then i would be a little bit more protected but for my acls i'll let them do the classic acl rehab protocol fully weight there Fully weight bore uh, and protected with a brace for four to six weeks. How about you, Al? Huh? Yeah, 95% of
1: my repairs are at the same time as doing a cruciate, so the, the cruciate dictates rehab, but I, you know, I, I probably reduce deep-loaded squats past 90 degrees up until three months.
0: Yeah. The um, thing that's interesting about the meniscus repair is the literature quotes a retail rate of 20-odd percent, yet I think a lot of people here, uh, knee surgeons, do that. It's, doesn't, it's nowhere near that. You can think of a handful of cases possibly that you've seen in the last five, ten years. What do you counsel patients about the retail rate? Do you give them a number? Do
2: you warn them? What do you say? Well, I'll, I'll tell them based on the the lesion specifics, but it's going to be one out of five, just to be cool and relax about it. Yeah. Um, but I think we became better surgeons in indicating what is suitable for repair, uh, what was maybe like, kind of like a salvage indication. You kind of pushed it, so. The things where I still struggle with are the ones with an ACL where you push the repair because it helps heal the ACL. Mm. And I tell those patients that there might be a chance that I have to go back in during their rehab at six months if the meniscus isn't healed. But I said there's advantages and disadvantages. The advantages, your ACL has been maturing with the meniscus with that... Uh, stability. Stability, Yeah. That's the only one where I sometimes struggle still a little bit. Are you seeing many retests after meniscus repair? Um,
1: no, not, I don't see many, but I see some. And you know, I see some, and you'll see ongoing patients with with ongoing symptoms, medial symptoms, bit of discomfort. Medial, and, right? You know, yeah. And yeah. it's the medial meniscus. The medial meniscus is the challenge. And the, you know, there's a big push, obviously, for, for meniscus repair. But if you see, you often see a peripheral lesion in the mid body, but as it actually goes more posterior, then you're into a sort of more of a, a red, white, white, white zone and you know if you're trying to put repair those they don't do well mm. and actually the majority do pretty good with a meniscectomy it's pretty it can be pretty forgiving you think how many meniscectomies are done and the number of patients that will have ongoing post meniscectomy pain mm. is pretty minimal so i think you got to be you know you got to be careful and you know if you look at the moon data the, the biggest predictor of worse outcome after ACL reconstruction is a reoperation
2: yeah right And so you really want to try and, and, and cut that reoperation rate down if you can uh, on repairs on the medial side with the ACL I think what is very important and what changed my practice is I do not no longer indicate my repair during the surgery right. that means I look at the MRI the MRI tells me 95% of the time repairable yes or no because I think during the arthroscopy you kind of overestimate the repair potential especially in the back that's the, the one on the medial side where you think oh that's a big lesion but then the MRI is just white on white yeah. and that's where you do repair if you just base yourself on the arthroscopy and then it's going to fail if we, um, so
0: we're, we're talking about the back of the meniscus let's talk about root tears with the, the root tears in the medial compartment they can be really quite tight you haven't got much space to get a, a device in fire it what are your tips of how to open up a tight medial joint
1: pretty low threshold uh, pie crusting and I go on the femoral side um, posterior fibers of the, of the superficial MCL um, and I just pie crust enough just to see. You know, I don't like this. You know, this whole thing popping open, and you suddenly got this massive drive-through sign. Yeah, that makes me very, very nervous. I just do enough, just enough to see. But if I can do a meniscus repair without doing a pie crust, I'm definitely going to, you know, try and preserve that.
0: So logistically, for some people who may not be familiar with that, you're using a white needle, a green needle, a spinal needle, eighteen
1: gauge, 18 gauge needle, yeah. Uh, and you you have the bevel and positioned in such a manner it's more like a like a knife, so it's a very sharp blade, yeah. And then you just you, you know, perforate the skin once, yeah. Keep it in the skin, yeah. And then do, go more to the posterior fibers, yeah. Sometimes it's very very easy to do it, you know. And the the the, the um, I think it was a Korean paper that talked about this magic point that you can. And identify. We try to do that. It's very, very tough. Mm-hmm. So sometimes you hit it spot on, and it just suddenly just opens, and you think you're a rock yeah. star. Other times you're poking away, and it's like, why is this thing not opening? Yeah. It's a nightmare.
0: So you're, go- you're going at the, you're going up on the femur. Yep. So there, you've got the leg in valgus on your hip, and you- you've got gentle sustained pressure. And then, I-, I know it sounds a bit anal, but what I'm asking is the actual technique. Are you going across? Are you going up
1: and down? Are you kind of diamond shape? I start. I start going sort of in a anterior to posterior manner in a yeah. pie crust, mm-hmm. and if it goes perfect, if it doesn't, then I start to do little little nicks.
0: Right. Okay. And are you, you brace
1: But you just got to be very, very careful because yeah. if you soon start doing that, all of a sudden you can get the whole thing just to completely spring open. And do you ever brace them? Have you ever had one that's gone with a big MCL?
2: No. Okay. Can I yeah, go back go- on the on the roots? Yeah. The thing is with roots, I think. We all struggle with the fact that you, want, you have your camera looking at the root and then your instrument, and one blocks the other. Mm. So what I change is I come from the opposite side. So medial root, scope on the medial side, and my aiming device from the lateral side. So I do a lateral tunnel. Right, so you're, so you're drilling
0: across from the lateral side of
2: the tibia. I drill across. That means that my pin is coming in my view, Yeah. and I'm away from the vascular elements. Yeah. Because I heard a terrible story recently from some colleague that you don't want to go there.
0: How did that? does um, So personally, I've fixed mine on the, on the medial side. I've fixed them on the lateral side. Um, so when you're doing that, you're, you're, how are you fixing it on the tibia? Uh,
2: post-school.
0: Okay. And so you're just clearing tibant out the way? Tibialis anterior. Fine. I just go transmuscular. Okay. Yeah. And you can, get, you can get good view down to bone and then fix yeah. it there?
1: Yeah, the the beauty about doing that is that if you go from the medial side, and if you end up with a very shallow tunnel, if you're doing yeah. a transosseous pull I've had cases where actually I've I've put in tapes, and the tape is cheese wired through the aperture at the uh, of the of the medial root, and it just starts to come more into the plateau. Yeah, it's kind of disappointing, you know. Yeah. So you know, if you actually go from the lateral side, you're not going to run into those sorts of problems. So I think I think the key is that you've got lots and lots of ways of achieving the the same the same thing. Yeah. And sometimes, depending on you know, may be doing ACL, cell, you could be doing a whole host of different. T- uh ligament reconstructions you got to work around your tunnels Fair enough. now I-, I want to talk about ramp lesions because that that's been quite a
0: bit of focus the french claim that everyone has one right <laughs> and um my personal experience has been that it's less than that i, I do a trans notch f- view every single arthroscopy i do admittedly i don't then take a shaver and shave the shit out of the meniscal capsular junction and create one but um how common are they really is it something you see on a weekly basis on a monthly basis um, this is going to be, well, weekly. Okay. So, so common, and you're repairing them weekly the Weekly that I
2: see them on yeah. the MRI. It's not weekly that I yeah. do them in the surgery, but I see them, I mean, yeah. So you, we do often see them reported on MRI, query r- r- uh, ramp lesion.
0: You go in there, you pull them in this because you don't think, you go around the back and you don't see it. So is that the one where we should then be taking a needle or a shaver to it? Or do we accept that it is stable when we're pulling on it?
2: I think the biomechanical stability testing is also important. Hmm. I think there's been maybe a little bit hype around the, uh, the ramp and the potential of the ramp. But it is a lesion that if you can't treat it, you have to repair yeah,
1: I think sure. if, I, in many ways, I think if you can't see it through a transnotch view, then I'm not sure it's important enough to repair.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, so if you're really going to go looking for it, then yeah, you're probably going to find some more. But also, don't forget, you know, it's not really an, in, an unstable meniscal lesion; it's an unstable uh, tibiofemoral joint. So you're really looking to see whether or not there's increased anteromedial rotatory laxity as a result of that tibio meniscal
2: lesion. And,
0: and you're the, testing that on EUA. Yeah.
2: And the data says you need to, or your device to do an LET, or an antilateral procedure in conjunction with your ACL. I think also that is very important. I think LET solved so many issues that we were that we were having. The, so le- the ACL is, I think we we have it. We solved. nailed it. It's solved. What's the next problem on
0: your list? <laughs> <laughs> I've got a whole bunch of problems here. I can go all day. Um, let's just um, talk about LETs. So, Al, huge congratulations on the stability trial. I see you're, you're still milking it now, five years on. Um, but... <laughs> could could you, just, uh, could you summarize it for people in the room, the, the outcome and recommendation of the stability trial?
1: Um, yeah, I guess, I mean, it's a large multi-centre randomized clinical trial. It's the largest RCT in ACL reconstruction that's been done worldwide. Um, it's over 600 patients under the age of 25, all with sort of identified as having risk factors of, of an, increased, or an increased risk of uh, re-injury. All ACL reconstructions were done with a hamstring tendon autographed controlled for graft size, so we really tried to get up to upwards of 8 millimeters. And uh, we added an LET on a randomized basis, and basically we showed that we reduced the, the risk of graft failure by about 60%, and the risk of what we call clinical failure, which was persistent rotatory laxity, as, as well as graft failure, by uh, 40%. So you know, I think the the what's come of that, you know, it is the gift that keeps giving. I mean, we've published a lot of work from it. There's a huge amount of data, um, but it's it's really informed an awful lot of practice. It's I'm really I'm very proud of it. I'm very proud of the team. I mean, because we've you know, there's a huge there's a huge effort, a huge endeavor, and it's changed practice around the world. And um, you know, it's enabled us. You know, Issacost sponsored that for two hundred thousand bucks. And uh, we've recently then got funding from both the NIH and and CIHR, which is the Canadian North American sort of uh, uh, funding agencies. So we're doing Stability too, and we managed to get $5.3 million. So, you know, that's that's the power of being able to do seed funding, small, you know, a large study with small funding to be able to then leverage that and do a bigger trial. And it's, again, it's going to inform a lot of what we're going to do in the future with with regards to ACL reconstruction.
0: Look, as much as it pains me to say, it's been phenomenal. It's had a huge impact on... Or knee surgery around the world,
1: which patients should everyone here be doing LETs on? I mean, I think you know, if you're if you're seeing a lot of young patients, you know, certainly under the age of 25, young athletic patients, and you're doing a soft tissue graft, in my opinion, you should be doing an LET on them all. And you know you got to remember is that you know ninety percent still did well. So it's no, we're not saying the hamstring tendon is a a terrible graft, right? But we just know that there's a that patient population. There's a higher risk of re-injury. And you know I talked yesterday about the downside of LET. I mean, there's not that many downsides really. You know, in the short term for sure. And so what would you rather do? You, know, you don't want that young patient, you don't want that young athlete to have a failure. And so if you can do something which is relatively low morbidity, low cost, and has a potential of having a dramatic impact on their outcome, why would you not do it?
0: Fair. And uh, Peter, how are you fixing yours?
2: Um, two fixations, staple, routine. And then there is... Where, a, where are you putting your staple, please? Uh, distal femur, lateral side, posterior side of the femur. And where in relation to the con- epicondyle? Proximal. Okay. Yeah. So the, the monoloop, classic LET modified, yeah. lamere, whatever you can call yeah. it. And then there's one thing that I think we struggle with is some patients lose quad function after ACL. Mm. And it takes them time. And especially in, in my population, that's more, more females than, than males. And I do blame the fact that we go below subvastus approach. And so, in those patients where I think there might be up for some period of loss of quad, I'll do a fixation a little bit more distal, not a lifting off the the lateral fastces, okay with a suture and just a, a Kocher Arnold approach basically
0: okay
2: and that's the, so that's a bit of a soft skill in terms
1: of judging the patient that you oh, yeah. think so. Tell tell us a little bit about what that, what what does that patient look like? What are the key signs that you're thinking that patient's not going to be able to activate their quad?
2: So, first of all, I I do surgery, tourniquet, and then I, my patient would be more likely a female patient with not that big bulk of muscle mass. Uh, And there's no other parameter. I just go for look for the patient if she has some hyperextension, for example. uh, I might be a little bit wary of her getting back at speed with the quad. I do believe, and this is where we had a number of discussions or, I mean, opinions. I do believe that part of the LET success is not just the lateral procedure with the lateral staple, but also weakening the quad for a number of weeks to months. Allowing your ACL to heal in a non-aggressive environment. That's fair.
0: And Peter, are you doing many quads tendons? Um, growing number with bone block. Yeah, right. And now your quads tendons are all the rage in North America. Go to every meeting you hear about. You're doing quite a lot of quads tendons now?
1: Doing quads mainly because of stability too. So we're randomizing a lot. But, you know... I would still, if a patient doesn't go into that trial and they ask me what, what I would then do for them, I'm doing more BTBs just purely because I've been doing that for a longer period of time. It's got a longer track record, and I still think it's a great option. So your number one go-to ACL graft is BTB? Right. Number two, quads? Quad. In, the, in that young patient population, in the older patient population, it would be a hamstring. Thank you.
0: Uh, listen, we're, like we're out of time there. Just say, Al actually recorded an podcast with us in the studio, um, and it was actually pains me to say it was fantastic I think it's a don't tell Andy Williams but I think it's the best one yet so that's going to be out next month so keep an eye out for that there's some bad behaviour and listen I just want to thank you to Comed for sponsoring this session I'm being ushered off the stage but thank you very much